because these communities are all sharing members and are all very transient and ephemeral, what you see is that it becomes very difficult to actually respond to it. So even if violence coming out of these communities is infrequent, it is hard to get a handle on how to actually prevent it proactively. Hi, I'm Anna Krane. I'm a senior research analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, an organization that supports the global tech sector tackle terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. Welcome to another episode of our podcast. This week, we're finding out about extreme violent far-right groups who are using the internet to plan and carry out real-world attacks. We'll hear how dangerous these fringe online communities really are and the work that's going on behind the scenes to tackle this threat. This is a fascinating but somewhat complex topic, so we'll do our best to explain as we go. On Friday, 28th of May, 2021, authorities in the US arrested 28-year-old Coleman Thomas Blevins, who they suspected was planning to carry out a mass shooting at a Walmart in Texas. Blevins was part of an online community called Inject Division. This is an accelerationist neo-Nazi community, of which Blevins was a well-known member going by the name of Corb Terran. Local law enforcement in Texas had been investigating this online community and following their activity on the messaging app Telegram. Authorities intercepted a message indicating that Blevins was planning some sort of mass terrorist attack. Alex Newhouse, the deputy director of the Center on Terrorism, Extremism and Counterterrorism and director of technical research at the Accelerationism Research Consortium, explains how Blevins' activity online raised the alarm with authorities before he could carry out an attack. Really, as far as we can tell, it wasn't a particularly sophisticated plan. He had definitely been acquiring firearms and he had definitely been talking like he was going to carry out a mass shooting. But this was very similar to other styles of accelerationist attack that we've seen over the past few years in that it was pretty rudimentary. He His plan was basically just to walk into a Walmart and, and attack. There was no real sort of, you know, grand sophisticated plan in the run up to this. And as far as we can tell, too, the the investigations from the sheriff's office were basically correspondingly as simple. They had been basically sitting in Telegram chats, watching these people for a, a matter of months, if not a year or two, and saw that they had been, you know, gradually escalating towards more violent rhetoric. Eventually, they were able to actually arrest him because the uh, statements that he'd been posting on Telegram raised to a certain threshold. So we heard Alex talking there about accelerationist style attacks. You'll hear this term a fair bit throughout the show. Accelerationism is a neo-fascist ideology that rejects liberalism, communism, and modern social structures. Rather than engaging with these political ideas through the ballot box, accelerationists believe the only solution is to use violence to collapse the system. Alex describes accelerationism as a niche of a niche of a niche. There's far-right extremism broadly, and then there's like white supremacist, neo-fascist, neo-Nazis. By no means is even the majority of neo-fascists that we can tell uh, will be considered like active accelerationist terrorists or militant accelerationists. However, the problem is that accelerationists represent a sort of uh, turning on its head of our traditional idea of terrorism. You know, in the vast number of definitions of terrorism that have been put out by experts and governments 
and agencies. One of the core elements of those definitions is that terroristic acts must be for some sort of political purpose. There is this idea that there is a political end game to the use of terrorism and, and terroristic violence. However, Acceleration has turned that on its head. They reject the idea of having some sort of political end game, and all they care about is ushering through the end of the the end of the world. In essence, the collapse of civilization and getting to a, a condition where a new golden age, a new sort of perfect society, perfect fascistic society can come about. They are not concerned with how that's going to be constructed because they believe that the conditions will essentially organically allow that new society to form. So any sort of action or event that puts pressure and emphasizes social conflict and social divisions can be adapted and hijacked for the purposes of the accelerationist movement. So it's a really, really academically interesting and potentially very worrying trend that we're seeing where they're basically rejecting that sort of end political goal and instead embracing violence in all of its forms. Matt Kreiner is a research analyst at the forefront of accelerationism studies. He's a senior research scholar at CTEC and managing director at ARC. He explains how the concept of accelerationism overlaps with fascism and how it came about after the Second World War. So after World War II, there was a predominance of liberal democracy taking over global uh, geopolitics. We had the UN emerging, we had the Cold War sort of putting the United States against communist Russia. And and really what we see is as the war winds down and and much of the fascist movement, which obviously is at the time predominantly tied to Nazism, Italian fascism, and Spanish Francoism, the dictator in Spain at the time, we really see this change in understanding what is our far right, which is essentially where fascism comes from, conservative, lower C, not American conservatives, but this broader reactionary notion of what are we now in relation to America, to Russia? How do we deal with that? And, you know, as those movements sort of deal with this, this is all very, by the way, simplified. I, I, I apologize to any fascist historians out there that are listening to this thinking, good God, man, you're really destroying that. Uh, but the the reality is they start to grapple internally with themselves, with their own national identities, with their sort of pan-Aryan, if they believed in that, or broader European identity structures. And they kept asking themselves, are we bigger than just our national identity? Are we bigger than just our political party? Is there something more there? And you know what they all collectively at varying levels agreed to is, well, the problem is really liberalism. The problem is this notion of equality and everybody has a, a seat at the table and that voting ultimately degrades human, in, in their minds, humans' capabilities and the, the progression of, of society. To them and to fascists at the, as we move through this big chunk of time, they start to contend with the systems. But ultimately what we see is that this doctrine and tactics emerge that effectively means, you know, we have to get rid of liberalism in any way, shape, or form, and we have to do it as quick as possible. But the the proto-accelerationist uh, mindset is really encapsulated in the in the, in the inter the after war period of Italy and how they really the fascist movements there really solidified their identities. After that, we start to see the influence of Evola really spike. Now, Evola was very prominently influenced, in, especially in the years of lead, within the neo-fascist groups that were active in terrorism and things of that nature. It's well-documented at this point, and, and he was brought before a judge at one point, though not found guilty. Um, it has something to do with him being paralyzed. They didn't really think that he could be involved in terrorism if he was paralyzed. We heard Matt talking about Julius Evola there. His name comes up a couple of times throughout this episode. He was a far-right Italian philosopher whose anti-Semite and Nazi thinking influenced far-right Italian movements during the 1950s and 60s. When we really look at that shift out of the 70s into the 80s and 90s, 
what we really see is this metaphysical assumption of identity for fascists. Uh, not all fascists, obviously, but what we get is this notion that there is something more to being a uh, fascist. There's something more to being an Aryan. And they start to really elevate their notions into this metaphysical space. Uh, they really believe that society is degraded to a point that it can't be saved. All social structures are corrupt. There's a lot of anti-Semitism and racism tied up in this, and I won't bog us down in that discussion at all. Just know it's really racist, really terribly anti-Semitic. And the justification that they come up with, the tactic they come up with, and this is, again, very simplified, is to race through this period to get back to the golden age, which comes afterwards. So there's where we get the notion of accelerationism. It's this belief that one no longer can engage with the political systems that are available. In fact, to do so is is counterproductive entirely. You know, At one point, they believe maybe we can turn back the time cycle. But no, it, it, they now believe we cannot do that. The only way is to go through. I should note that accelerationism is not exclusively a militant terroristic notion. It actually has a lot of techno-philosophical concepts that have to do with many things well beyond what we talk about. We've had discussions with a few folks that are of those camps philosophically, and we've been very clear. Listen, we're talking about a co-opting. We're talking about people that they recognize what you're saying, what you're studying, what you sort of believe in philosophically, and they reject that and say, no, we're just going to turn this into some awful terroristic behavior. So that's the differentiation there. But I think when we really get down into it, accelerationism is ultimately an expression of neo-fascist rejection of liberalism, communism, and broader social structures in today's modern world. Okay, so now we have a greater understanding of what accelerationism is, what's it got to do with Coleman Thomas Blevins and his alleged plot to attack a Texas Walmart? Well, as we mentioned earlier in the show, Blevins was suspected to be one of the leaders of the neo-Nazi community, Inject Division. I'm going to let Alex explain who they are in a bit more detail. Inject Division is a, basically a marketing brand for accelerationist violence. A group of people, 12 to 15 hardened members, plus about 200 of what we call like a passive support network around them, put together this brand called the Inject Division that was organized around injecting, for lack of a better term, pardon the pun, neo-fascist accelerationism into the COVID misinformation space. What they were trying to do is essentially exploit the fears and the panic around COVID and around fears about the vaccination, anxieties about the response from governments to the pandemic, and essentially direct all of that panic, all of that anxiety towards a violent accelerationist posture. This comes down to them even using their logo, which is a Wehrmacht SS division shield, but it has a syringe in the middle of it. All of their brand is dedicated to this idea of basically merging COVID panic with neo-fascist accelerationism. So in essence, what they were trying to do is basically recruit a certain segment of the population towards accelerationist terrorism. So where did this group come from and how can we describe its ideology? Over to Matt. Ultimately, when you try to pick apart what is the ideological stance of Inject Division as it relates to the other accelerationist groups that he was a part of or interacting with, what we really see is that they are sort of a step beyond standard post-war fascism. It's, it's no longer just this notion that Nazism was great. It's actually this notion of spiritual warfare as you know derived from Evola's teachings that modern world has to be eradicated. It has to be done away with. And the only way to do so is with purifying violence. And this sort of really solidifies our understanding of what the ideology, so to speak, of inject division was. 
Matt says when it comes to Blevins, the array of items and paraphernalia found at his property after his arrest provides some insights into the beliefs that were motivating him. One of the most important ones is the set of books that he has on the table. There's a Bible, there's a book by Julius Evola, there's the Turner Diaries, which is written back in the 80s and is very much a, a, a big element of white supremacy, terrorism. It's really inspired a lot of violence and activity. There's Mike Ma's harassment architecture, and then there's the Quran. And interestingly enough, sitting over top of the table is a picture of the Saudi flag alongside of the uh, Confederate flag and then some neo-Nazi and phalangist, the Spanish fascist movement flag. So when we think about that, we sort of analyze what does this mean? A lot of respects, it means absolutely nothing. They're horribly contradictory in a lot of ways. And really, truly, it, on the face of it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. But when we dig into those books, when we dig into the, the notions of those symbols of the flags are really giving us, what we see is this movement that has been written now by a couple of different folks called traditionalism. And effectively, what we see is the blending of spiritual notions with warfare and terrorism that now drives into a rejection of the modernity and rejection of Western liberal democratic systems. And ultimately, when you try to pick apart what is the ideological stance of injectivision as it relates to the other accelerationist groups that he was a part of or interacting with. So we heard Matt hint at this merging of extreme far right and violent Islamist ideas. But how unusual is this overlap? Contemporarily, there is a bit of an abnormality here. It is not something you would expect to see overlapping between Islamists like Al-Qaeda or ISIS and Nazi neo-fascist movements, right? When we talk about it, though, in, in respect to the traditionalism element and what, you know, injectivision really represents, it actually is very expected because Evola and, and others within the sort of traditionalism, militant traditionalism movement very clearly state that spiritual warfare as, and they point at Islamic terrorist groups and say, these are ideals. These are the way human beings should be fighting against modernity. And the reason is, and there's a very good article that just came, or report that just came out from um, the ICSR, uh, and I really suggest everybody read it. Basically, the reason is that society has created the one only solution, and that's purifying violence, like I said earlier. But the model at which Evola saw being exercised by Islamic terrorist organizations was one that he felt white people or Aryan people should try to emulate. And this was important because it lays out this pathway of tactics and, and procedures that they, you know, the neo-fascists that are of the Evolian mindset should carry out moving forward and should start to try to create themselves. So when we talk about, is it unusual? Yes and no, right? I mean, I think ultimately today we're seeing more and more of it, specifically in these neo-fascist accelerationist spaces. And it's because of that influence of traditionalism and Evola and others that felt that there's this value of spiritual warfare out of other groups that can be emulated and, and used towards their goals. Alex says we've actually seen this crossover become more visible in the last decade. One of the main schism lines within the neo-fascist accelerationist community is actually around the embrace of Islamism and jihadism as something to aspire to. So a lot of the sort of contemporary version of traditionalist accelerationism that Matt is talking about comes from the Iron March White Supremacist Forum that was live between 2011 and 2017. And the guy who ran that forum was a hardened traditionalist. And he had a cadre of people who believed very strongly in the same sort of philosophy that he did. And what he was pushing into this community of people that he had gathered within this forum was this idea that Islamism isn't actually something to reject out of hand, which is a pretty weird and sort of idiosyncratic view within the normal far right. 
you know, we often will associate Islamophobia and xenophobia with the far right, especially in the United States and the United Kingdom. What Iron March was doing was actually trying to reshape that and instead push this idea that Muslims and especially jihadists are actually, in a way, the best epitome of sort of Aryan spiritual warriors. And so when you look at the Iron March forums, when you look at the posts that were being sent then, and you look at the way that neo-fascists are talking even today, you see this as a place of factionalism, a place of of conflict within the movement. You see a lot of people coming out of your sort of more conventional neo-Nazi white supremacist movements who are like, you know, we need to kick out Muslims from the United States. We need to resist Islam in all of its forms. But then you also see these traditionalists coming in and pushing this idea into it that basically neo-fascists should and need to learn something from jihadism, which is why you see people like Blevins starting to actually embrace the Quran. You know, he had the Saudi Arabian flag behind him. You see other sorts of neo-fascists embracing Hezbollah. Like it is happening more and more that you're seeing this embrace. From what we've seen in large part, it has to do with that influence of Volian philosophy on neo-fascists. Matt believes the more we know about these extreme far-right groups and their beliefs and ideologies, the better we can preempt and limit their attacks. As we really dive into the research of it, we really get into understanding how that metaphysical influence can move a standard, I'm calling standard, it's like really standard about fascism, but uh, a standard fascist that just wants the Third Reich or just really hates Jewish people can get them to start in believing in this notion of individualized spiritual warfare, modeling after that jihadist influence, we start to see how that narrative of, of traditionalism moves people towards that violent space. And that's that's something that is yet to really be pulled apart. Uh, and frankly, it's, it's extraordinarily nuanced and difficult. So it's important that we note where these influences emerge from and what they're ultimately trying to accomplish and how they first get in there. And as Alex alluded to earlier, uh, you know, Blevins was speaking to Christian identity. We've seen a fairly concerning level of of Christian identity co-opting in order to get people towards this traditionalist fascist space. And that's noteworthy for many reasons, if not more that another individual who very much carried out a a terrible attack was also influenced by Christian identity. And that that was Timothy McVeigh, a, a saint within these spaces to a lot of these individuals. So now we understand these accelerationist groups a bit better, let's turn to how they use the internet to spread their message. Diva Shatnia is an open source intelligence analyst at Tech Against Terrorism, specializing in tracking how violent Islamists and the violent far right exploit online spaces. She explains that there isn't one specific way in which these far right groups are using the internet. However, there are patterns in their behavior. Terrorist and violent extremist use of the internet is incredibly broad. And these actors will actively try and exploit as many different platforms as possible for a number of different operational and strategic purposes as well. You know, whether this be the dissemination of propaganda content, whether this be internal communication, whether it be recruitment, what we see across the board through our kind of daily monitoring of this online behavior is that, you know, these actors are looking to instrumentalize as many different online spaces as possible to ensure that they maintain longevity, whether it be for their content or whether it be for their internal chats, and that they also protect their anonymity online. Generally across the board, there are a number of different features that appeal the most to different violent extremists and terrorist actors online. This list isn't by any means comprehensive, but generally speaking, when these actors are looking to exploit certain online spaces, 
there are certain features such as uh, security. So, um, for example, is end-to-end encryption offered on a particular online space? You know, would it be uh, relatively straightforward to identify these users? Does does this platform allow for anonymity? Is one thing that adherents of certain violent extremist ideologies tend to gravitate towards when determining which online spaces to exploit. Beyond that, stability, again, to what extent can these actors expect these platforms to moderate the content? Is there a high degree of likelihood that a propaganda poster that goes up on X platform will be taken down within 24 hours, or is it likely to stay active for a long time? Again, usability and audience reach is something that we've also seen kind of repeatedly being um, prioritized as important features of what different online spaces are exploited by terrorists and violent extremists. And again, it's not just messaging platforms. It's not even just social media platforms either. We're seeing a kind of continued development in the way that the violent far right in particular are seeking out alternative tech platforms in order to to kind of conduct their online activities. In a lot of cases, these platforms, these spaces are, are really born out of a kind of uh, communal feeling of online persecution, to which degree or not, you know, that can be argued, I think is somewhat irrelevant. But, you know, the alternative tech space is really born out of this idea that these different platforms, these different messaging platforms, email providers, even website infrastructure providers are allowing online users a choice away from the mainstream. They often kind of position themselves as championing free speech and will, in in many cases, herald their lack of uh, moderation of certain types of content as well. This is how they draw in users from the from the violent far right in particular. But taking it back to Inject Division and their exploitation of Telegram in particular. First of all, Inject Division is still active. They are an active online entity. Up until as recently as a few days ago, their their main public channel on Telegram was still active. They were disseminating content. They had just over 100 different subscribers, Uh, much like how when uh, all the would-be Texas mass shooting was thwarted, Inject Division had nearly 200 subscribers on Telegram. After their platform was deleted, they they returned to the platform. And this this idea of kind of recidivism being an issue amongst actors such as Inject Division and their affiliates, including Foyer Creek Division and other entities as well. This idea that, you know, once you deplatform such entities, that there's very little, you know, stopping them from returning is a is a kind of constant issue that we see returning to uh, uh, online content moderation and beyond, really. What's really interesting when you look at attacks carried out by members of extreme far-right online communities is their use of symbolism to not only signal to their in-group, but to also drive divisive and toxic societal narratives. It's something Matt says we saw when a white supremacist live-streamed an attack that killed 51 people at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2019. Tarrant, when he carried out his attack, did two things that made his attack really indicative of the accelerationist online-to-offline pipeline, right? One, he live-streamed it. This is very important because it, it really amplifies the impact of what he was able to do. It's been emulated by others, and it becomes part of this um, broader tendency within accelerationist cultures to sort of pick and choose tactics and elements of attacks in order to 
deepen their impact and, and up their so-called gamified score within their own ranks to gain credibility, essentially, in their in-group. The second element was he used a very particular weapon. He used the AR-15. And he wrote in his manifesto and, and talked about this uh, at length that the goal of this was to impact the American audience and to drive discourse about the American issues in our society right now in differences over the, the Second Amendment. And the reason that matters is that it shows accelerationists are using hyper-specific small elements of their attacks to drive massive change across social structures. And this goes back to the bigger issue about liberalism, rejecting liberalism, trying to do everything they can to collapse the system onto itself. They utilize these, these spaces where people have a lot of disagreements, right? There's very nuanced arguments around the Second Amendment in the, Ameri in the United States, but they are able to grab onto that and wrench it in a way that makes it primal and emotional to where discourse around it becomes so deeply polit politicized that every time now we think about a Second Amendment argument, we often point back to something that's pretty close to, if not outright accelerationist, as a recent example. Right. Again, that doesn't change the, the history of terrorist attacks. Right wing groups have tried to, and used Second Amendment stuff for years uh, as a social divider in America. But we're starting to see it now spread throughout Europe as well with 3D printing, uh, with with movements that in, in, in Europe and elsewhere that have, you know, wanting to use firearms as a means of driving wedges in, in liberal societies or democratic societies, even if they're not liberalist. So it's very important that we look at that element, too. Right. I think there's there's a lot there that can be d dug into. So how dangerous are accelerationist online communities such as Inject Division? And how does that translate to offline violence? Alex says that's the billion dollar question experts in this field are trying to work out. We're still just figuring out how the accelerationist movement transnationally actually operates. What we have realized over the past few years is that the accelerationist movement has organized itself in such a way to basically mess with people who came up learning about jihadism and studying the Islamic State and Al-Qaeda. It is fundamentally different because these groups that we talk about, like Inject Division, Foyer Creek Division, Adam Waffen Division, are all just basically elements of a broader transnational network. And it isn't even like the Al-Qaeda transnational network because there isn't really even a central leadership. We're talking about a layer of ideologues, a layer of propagandists. They're all very ephemeral. Like we see that Inject Division popped up in 2021, has only a couple hundred subscribers, and yet still managed to spin off a would-be mass shooter. Foyer Creek Division was most active in 2018, 2019, was busted via a basically like a wide array of different law enforcement activities, but then came back up basically as like zombie Foyer Creek Division in 2021 alongside Inject Division and share a lot of the same membership. Foyer Creek Division, the 2021 version has switched leadership like four or five times this year alone, but it's all within that same sort of milieu. And they're using these groups, they're using these brands basically to uh, throw people off the scent to both do targeted recruitment for uh, various niches within the far right, but also to have this constant overlap, this constant, uh, this constant transitional um, nature to the to the way that the network presents itself to the public. That is useful for a variety of reasons. One, the governments throughout the world are still very used to primarily focusing on these named groups, and so you see, for instance, Australia designated Fourier Creek Division well after. Its sort of main manifestation, they designated Sonic Creek Division basically a year after it went defunct. It's just still very hard for 
for governments uh, and and law enforcement agencies to get a handle on how it actually operates. And so because these communities are all sharing members and are all very transient and ephemeral, and they're all sort of in this miasma of accelerationist radicalization and mobilization, what you see is that it becomes very difficult to actually respond to it. So even if violence coming out of these communities is infrequent, it is hard to get a handle on how to actually prevent it proactively because it's just so it's so hard to get a handle on what the shape of, of the movement is at any one time. And then alongside that, what we also see is that when terrorist acts do come out of these communities, the targets that they're targeting are often used for their various the, the symbolic nature of them in that they are places that will cause basically mass panic among the populace for the lowest number of uh, casualties and the lowest amount of effort. So we see, for instance, accelerationist attacks targeting synagogues and mosques for probably obvious reasons, but also for that for that impact of it being, you know, targeting these spaces that are supposed to be these like these gathering places of of peace and of of collaboration, of social networking. They target those to inspire fear. They target WalMarts and King Supers and and grocery stores and and various other places of you know very normal everyday activity for that same purpose. We've also seen them targeting you know clubs and and, and bars uh, throughout the world. So they're choosing these they're choosing these targets that are meant to put the highest amount of pressure on social division, on social isolation, on social anxiety in order to have that sort of disproportionate impact because they know that there are only a very, very small number of people who will ever come out of this movement and actually carry out violence. So those two things together combine to have uh, to, to pose a threat that is outsized compared to the number of people who are actually participating in it. It means that we have to have a sort of a, a pretty significant shift in the way that we think about uh, responding to these movements. And it also means that we have to, you know, have people much more on the ground monitoring the way that these communities are transitioning and evolving and collapsing and restructuring. Because the way that those those online communities are operating is very linked to the way that they then can spin off mass shooters and accelerationist terrorists out in the physical world. And as Diba explains, these groups are part of a much wider global online network with ideologically allied communities promoting each other's content. You know, just as an example of how these networks work in practice, when Inject Division's most recent public channel was deplatformed from Telegram in late January, the new iteration of their of their of their channel and subsequent private group was promoted by National Partisan Movement, which was then also promoted by another channel and and more. So it's this kind of continued amplification and promotion, not just of the propaganda coming out of these actors, but it's also the the kind of uh, specific and determined attempts at building this network as well. You know, there are a lot of uh, strategic reasons behind the benefits of building these kind of online networks. It's to be able to kind of recruit from different pools of users that you would otherwise not have access to, but it's also to ensure longevity beyond the lifespan of any one particular channel or entity as well. So what's the best way to tackle the threat of these online groups and whose responsibility should it be? Can these groups simply be removed by tech companies? Here's Diba again. First and foremost, it's collaboration. It's collaboration between governments. It's collaboration with tech companies as well, with civil society and academia to be able to approach, you know, 
answering the the threat that these actors pose in a holistic and practical way as well. You know, we can't expect tech platforms to be responsible for, you know, making such uh, uh, huge decisions on a day-to-day basis when governments themselves aren't, you know, willing or, or able in some cases to kind of give the clear direction and guidelines that is often severely needed in a timely manner to be able to moderate these actors in a, in a kind of safe and um, robust way, whilst, of course, still maintaining human rights and freedom of speech. That's a very, very quick answer. Uh, to the second question, what are the benefits and what are the disadvantages of removing them? I'll start with the disadvantages. Again, we see that as deplatforming from kind of mainstream social media platforms to smaller online platforms, you know, for every activity that we as counterterrorism practitioners take, there is a response. There is a, you know, there is a changing of behavior. There is a a slight tweaking to the strategies deployed by these actors to avoid content moderation. And it's worth stating as well that when we look at the violent far right, when we look at actors such as Inject Division and their affiliates, their understanding of the community guidelines and the terms of spe- terms of service of the of the online spaces that they exploit is extremely sophisticated. They have a very very robust and well rounded knowledge of the different uh, kind of platforms that they're seeking to use and will kind of change their behavior accordingly as content moderation practices and efforts improve over time. So, you know, I think that from our perspective at Tech Against Terrorism, from the perspective of of practitioners and and kind of uh, other colleagues in this space, the best way to approach this, this threat is really, is to kind of not look at it in terms of how can we stop online violent extremism and, and kind of online terrorist propaganda. I think it, it's a it's a much kind of more realistic question to, to to try and answer how do we disrupt them in the most efficient and productive ways possible. It's about disrupting their activities, disrupting their communication, their ability to disseminate propaganda, more so than it is closing off the internet to them completely, because, you know, it would be an impossible task. Matt says law enforcement and policymakers need to work more closely with tech platforms to tackle the threat of groups like Inject Division. It's not just in the sense of getting the platform's data. It's a matter of getting the better understanding of what the platforms are faced with. How is it that they're actually dealing with a lot of these things themselves? And then having a dialogue that's non-confrontational. Because there's a lot to learn from the other side of things, that practitioner and law enforcement side that really informs how they can do their job better without needing to resort to wholesale grabs, if you will, of data. Because that doesn't always inform what they're trying to do. Matt, Alex and Deba are working hard to fill this gap we've talked about. They're involved in a new initiative called the Accelerationism Research Consortium that's looking to address the growing threat of accelerationism. Matt believes collaboration in this space will be pivotal. Ultimately, ARC uh, is really aimed at, at building together these cross, um, cross-sectional, cross-industry understandings of how to, how to address accelerationism. And this is important because accelerationism really presents a new challenge to many agencies. It's an evolution above and beyond what we've seen in previous uh, iterations of, of terrorist activity. As we've talked about through the whole episode, you know, it really is a force amplifier and it draws on these extraordinarily niche concepts and philosophies, which means that most of our risk indicator models, most of our understandings of how to apply law uh, to the circumstances and actually get an effective um, you know, indictment or a, a, a jailing of individuals or even just to get them off the playing board can be harder to do in an accelerationist standing. 
And so ARC really aims to inform across all levels of the broader social uh, you know, response to this, the ways in which we can effectively do that and, and really break down some of these natural barriers that exist uh, in order to get at information sharing flowing. And, and that's crucial because oftentimes we've seen in the past, these efforts come on the backside of a new wave of terroristic activity, on the backside of a new evolution of tactics or uh, a digital evolution of communications. We're trying to do something new. We're trying to start with that and then really build those those inroads into spaces that need this information. Now, obviously, we didn't start at the beginning of accelerationist terrorism. That's already been going on. But we're catching it, we believe, in, in a time frame in which uh, you know, this information is still useful enough that we're not going to be so far behind the ball that the goals in which they've laid out for themselves and have shown to society are so advanced that we can't stop or push back on them effectively. Um, so ARC is really going to is going to provide that that come together space for any any and every capable uh, entity and individual that wants to contribute to that, that wants to be a part of, you know, really turning the tide against accelerationist uh, violence. And, you know, I think ultimately what we're trying to do is give people an opportunity that those voices that can't really be heard, right, that the, the institutional barriers that kind of prevent them from getting in there, an opportunity to get that knowledge that they've developed, whether that's from uh, their own individualized research or their on the ground experience dealing with accelerationists uh, at protests and, and counter demonstrations. Those spaces are important to hear from because those are typically overlooked spaces and accelerationists have really uh, focused on those spaces and they've, they've really allowed that because of that they've been overlooked in terms of tactics and things of that nature um you know i could talk for days about arc so i'll, I'll cut it off there but i think ultimately what we're trying to say is there's an opportunity to get ahead of it to a degree and that's what arc is trying to do here at tech against terrorism we're continuing to closely monitor accelerationist groups across a range of platforms and have crisis protocols in place to react to any credible and imminent threat to life which we immediately escalate to law enforcement a huge thank you to our guests Matt Kreiner and Alex Newhouse and to Tech Against Terrorism's Diba Shapnia for their input in today's episode. To find out more about Tech Against Terrorism and our work, visit techagainstterrorism.org or follow us on Twitter at Tech versus Terrorism, where you can find resources on today's topic. I'm Anna Krane. This is the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week for another episode. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.